Well, I want you to think back for a moment to the most advanced math class you ever passed. For some of you, if you're like me, you have to think back a long ways. (laughs) Some of you maybe not as long. Some of you maybe are taking some math classes right now. I don't see any of our high schoolers here, but maybe some of you are. But the idea is that math, think back to math, it builds on itself over time. That's the way that it works. So it's very difficult to learn calculus if you don't already understand algebra. And it's very difficult to understand algebra if you haven't already learned addition and subtraction. And that's because there is a logical sequence to math. And it gets increasingly complex the further along you go. And the same is true in many ways for the book of Romans. Which means as we move forward, we need to occasionally look backward and refresh ourselves on some of the concepts that the Apostle Paul has covered thus far. And one of the most basic concepts so far is the doctrine of justification. It's the main focus of our passage this morning. It's been a major focus of Romans so far. So I want to just briefly look back at what Paul has covered so far regarding justification. So in chapters 1 through 3, Paul explains the need for justification. He says, every person who's ever lived, all of you, you desperately need justification. And you need it because without it, you would remain guilty of sin before God. All people have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's what he says. So when you look at God's commands, don't lie, don't steal, don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't worship other gods, don't disobey your parents, don't covet your neighbors, such and such, everybody's broken all of them. And without justification, you would remain guilty of sin before God. You would be under the wrath, therefore, of God. His punishment would remain aimed at you. You'd be unable to know God in relationship. You could only know God as your judge. You could never know Him as your friend or your father. And you would be unable to enter God's presence in eternity. This is why people go to hell when they die. It's not because God is angry and mean and vindictive. It's because he's so loving and so good and so holy that an unrighteous, sinful, unholy person could never stand in his presence. He'd be incinerated. (laughs) Just like kindling when it gets too close to a fire. And so everyone needs justification. That's basically the first three chapters of Romans. Next, Paul explains the way of justification. So everyone needs it. How do you get it? That's chapter 3, verse 21 through chapter 4, verse 25. And he says, essentially, that the way of justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. There's an exchange. The Son of God, God Himself, Jesus, takes your sin. And He takes your guilt, and He takes your unrighteousness, and He takes the punishment that you deserve in His own death on the cross. And in exchange, he gives you his innocence. And he gives you his holiness. And he gives you his perfect record of obedience, his righteousness. And he gives you his eternal life in relationship with the Father. The reason people go to heaven is not because they've figured out how to be good and righteous. It's because Jesus was good and righteous for them, and he paid the penalty that they deserve. And Paul says that when someone simply believes that, when they trust in what Jesus did for them at the cross, they are justified. That's the way. That's the way it works. 
they become a Christian. Being justified is synonymous. It's the same as becoming a Christian, or Jesus calls this in John 3, being born again. It is something that happens to you when you believe. That's the way of justification. Now we get to chapter 5, and Paul is going to begin to explain the results of justification. We've got the need for justification, the way of justification, and now the results of justification. This is our only heading this morning, if you're taking notes. This is our main point. When someone becomes a Christian, what happens? That's the question. When someone sees their need for justification, they place their trust in what God did for them through the death and resurrection of Jesus. They're born again. What happens to them? What changes in them? What are the results of justification? Think about it this way. If we brought 10 random strangers up here on stage, none of you knew anything about them, you'd never met them, you'd never had a conversation with them, and I told you, okay, three of these 10 people are Christians, and seven of them are not. And I asked you, without knowing anything about them, to identify which ones are the Christians and which ones aren't, just from looking at them. Would you be able to do that? Of course not. Of course you wouldn't. Because what makes someone a Christian is fundamentally internal and invisible. It is faith in Jesus. So another interesting way to think about and to look at the results of justification is to ask the question, how do you know if someone's a Christian? How do you know? And probably a far more important question is how do you know if you're a Christian? You have to look for the results of justification. You might think to yourself, well, I'm here at church, aren't I? (laughs) I own a Bible. I've got it with me. It's right here. I have a nice case for it and everything. And didn't you see my car out in the parking lot? I've got a Jesus fish bumper sticker slapped on that bad boy. Of course I'm a Christian. I go to church. I read my Bible. And Paul would say, nope, 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 nope. That's not the way of justification. The way a person becomes a Christian and is justified is invisible, internal faith in Jesus. So how do you know if you have that? Number one, he says a Christian has peace with God. Verse one, therefore, since we have been justified by faith because of our justification, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Apart from Christ, no one has peace with God. Nobody. There isn't peace. There's only hostility. Later, we'll look at this next week in verse 10, Paul says, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. You look at that verse in context, enemies of who? He's not talking about enemies with other people. He's saying while we were enemies with God, that's when God stepped in and Jesus came And God reconciled, God redeemed. It was while we were his enemies. So what that means, what Paul is explicitly saying is that before becoming a Christian, before justification, you were God's enemy. Have you ever thought about that? (laughs) That every person who is guilty of sin apart from Christ is God's enemy. It's not just that God is far off and distant and indifferent. You just don't know him that well. It's not just that people are not friends with God. They're not children of God. They are his enemies. You read the book of Revelation. 
And this is so clear. Revelation, it's written by the Apostle John. It is prophetic about what's going to happen, the events that are going to unfold at the end of the world. And the primary event is that Jesus is going to return and Jesus is going to rule and reign. He wins. And in Revelation 19, it describes this moment when Jesus returns to judge the world. And the way he's described is as a king riding to battle on a white horse with a drawn sword. And all of his angels are riding on white horses in battle formation behind him. And you think to yourself, if Jesus is coming to judge the world, why would a judge need an army? Why would a judge need a sword? Well, it tells us in verse 11, Revelation 19, with justice, he judges and makes war. He is not only coming to pronounce judgment. He's going to do that. He's going to look at your life. He's going to say innocent or guilty, but he's also coming to bring justice on the guilty. He's coming to make war. But for the Christian, Paul says, there's peace. Isn't that good news? There's peace. You're already innocent. The verdict has already been rendered. You're already righteous. You're totally acceptable to God. You're not his enemy. You're his friend. You're on his side. You're in his family if you're justified because of Jesus' death in your place. There is peace. Number two, a Christian stands in the presence of God. How do you know if someone's a Christian? A Christian stands in the presence of God. Verse 2 says, We have also obtained access through him by faith into this grace in which we stand. There's so much there. But I want to focus on this idea of standing. What does it mean that a Christian can stand in God's presence? Well, it's not primarily about a physical position. The book of Revelation also tells us that in the end, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Everyone's going to bow, Christians included. And we want to bow. Christians are not only going to bow on that day, we bow now. We bow our hearts before God in worship, but we also stand in God's grace. What does that mean? It's not about a physical position. Look again at Revelation chapter 6. Again, describing the events that take place leading up to the return of Jesus and the end of the world, the final judgment. It says this in verse 15. Then the kings of the earth, the nobles, the generals, the rich, the powerful, and every slave and free person hid in the caves among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of the one seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. We would rather be crushed by rocks in caves than have to face the Lord Jesus. That's what they're saying. Why? Because the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand? Nobody can stand in God's presence. Now, why not? Why can't people stand in God's presence? The psalmist explains it this way. Psalm 1, verse 5. Therefore, the wicked will not stand up in the judgment, 
nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to ruin. What the psalmist says is that people can't stand in God's presence because of his judgment. That's why. The wicked will not stand up in the judgment. The judgment of God, it is like a crushing weight. So imagine for a second uh, that we put a backpack on every one of you. Okay, so we strap to your shoulders. It's got a little clip. Cinch it up nice and tight. A backpack or like a rucksack. And then we open up the backpack. We start putting weight in. How much weight do you think you could hold in a rucksack? Some of you are thinking, not much. (laughs) Now, I see some strapping young men here this morning. I'm thinking, I'm looking at you, Ed, Pat, Hezekiah, Jake. How, How much do you guys think you could hold? I mean, 300 pounds, 400, 500 pounds. That'd have to be a pretty sturdy backpack. Now, what if we put 2,000 pounds of lead weights into that rucksack? At, at, at some point, it's the same result for everyone. That's the idea. At some point, your legs would buckle, your back, you know, your back would break. You would be utterly crushed under enough weight. Now imagine the weight of God's judgment. Think about this for a moment. And how do you even picture this? Okay, let me try to help you sense this. I want you to remember a time in your life, you all have many of them, but just think about a time in your life when you got caught doing something you knew was wrong. Has that ever happened to you? I don't mean when you were a kid and you you snuck a cookie out of the cookie jar. Think about a time when you got caught doing something you knew was wrong. I have way more memories of this than I care to remember. But just think about one of those instances and think about how you felt. Now, the universal response to getting caught doing something you know is wrong is shame. Shame is a powerful feeling. And just think about that moment. Think about that instance. Think about that shame. Think about the embarrassment Think about the fear. What's going to happen? What kind of trouble am I going to be in? How's this going to change the relationship with this person or these people? That's just one time. Just one. And you're being judged by other people. Maybe one person. Maybe a handful of people. Now imagine the weight of God's judgment. So God, he looks at that instance and he sees it more clearly than any of those people involved. And God has a record of every shameful thing you've ever done. And not every shameful, not just every shameful deed, every word, every thought, every attitude, every desire. Secret thought, secret desire that nobody besides you has ever known. He has a record of all of it, and he's going to lay it out before you all at once. That's what's going to happen at the judgment. Who is able to stand. That's the idea. Now what Paul says is if you're a Christian, you are. You are able to stand. You stand in God's presence. Look at Jude 1.24. He says, Now to him who is able to protect you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory without blemish, and with great joy. What in the world? (laughs) 
The, the opposite of standing is falling, which biblically in this context means failing. And it's really clear, and it makes total sense. Your strength will fail when tested by God's judgment. But not if you're justified. That's what Paul is saying. If you're justified, you can stand in his presence with confidence. Why? It's because of his strength. It's because of his righteousness that's been given to you in Christ. This is another reason why you can't lose your salvation. Because that would be equivalent to falling. You can't fall out of his grace because he's the one who makes you stand. And he's not going to fail. You don't do it on your own. If you're a Christian, you stand. Next result of justification. Number three, a Christian rejoices in the hope of future glory. He says, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. So this makes sense. If you have peace with God, if you can stand in his presence at the judgment, that means seeing him return in glory doesn't produce fear. It produces joy. This is the moment when you receive the fullness of your inheritance if you're a Christian. For a Christian, the greatest day of your life is the last day when you see him face to face. That's the greatest moment. And then it just gets better from there, which totally changes the way we look at death. It totally changes what we see as valuable. Think about Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, do not store up for yourself treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasure in heaven can never be taken from you. It'll never deteriorate. You'll never lose it. It's eternal in nature. It totally changes what we value. It changes our outlook on wealth. It changes our outlook even on physical health. Because we know, man, this body, it's a gift from God. We want to take good care of it. We want to steward it well, but there's an expiration date. And so we're not going to spend all of our time and energy and effort on maintaining health because we know we can't. Changes how we look at investment, changes how we look at and value experiences. The Christian places their hope for all of those things in eternity, not in the world. And the Christian ought to have unshakable joy. Unshakable joy. Now, so far we have three results of justification that shape the life and thinking of a Christian. But if you think back to our illustration, okay, we bring 10 people up on stage. Some of them are Christians, some of them are not. How do you determine who's who based purely on observation? I would say that these three results are relatively difficult to observe. In fact, I think they're impossible to observe. They result in observable behaviors. They result in observable attitudes, but the behavior, the attitude itself, isn't the result of justification. How do you observe peace with God? How do you observe standing in His presence or hoping in His glory? You really can't. You can only see derivatives of them, which we could talk about, but look at the next result. Number four, what is the result of justification? Paul says, a Christian rejoices in their suffering. Now, this is crazy. (laughs) Verse 3, not only that, all that seems reasonable, but (laughs) he says, not only that, but we also boast in our afflictions. 
The English Standard Version says, we rejoice in our sufferings. This is one of the most observable, distinguishing marks of a Christian, of a person who has been born again. They rejoice in the midst of suffering. Now, what does that mean? The Greek word for suffering <clears throat> or affliction, it is the word thlepsis. It's kind of fun to say, thlepsis. And it's not just the standard difficulties of life. When we think about suffering, we tend to think about it very broadly. Okay, in, in a world that is broken by sin, you're going to get sick. You're going to break bones. You're going to have financial pressure. You're going to have relational strain. Even if you're the most mature Christian in the world, you still are sinful. And you're dealing with sinful people. So you're going to have relational pain and strain. You're going to have stressful situations at work. That's not what this is talking about. That's not the suffering that Paul is talking about here. This is not just saying that Christians have a good attitude when life is difficult. Now, of course they do. They ought to. But so do many non-Christians. That's not the distinguishing marker of a Christian. The word, thlepsis, it's more often translated tribulations. It is the type of suffering that comes into your life only because you're following Jesus. Tribulations. It's almost like a technical term in the New Testament for uniquely Christian suffering. That's what he's talking about. So what is that? Well, it's many, many things. But I think, firstly, it is the pain associated with the cost of following Jesus. So justification is a free gift. You can't earn it. If you try to earn it, then you don't have it. <laughs> it's a free gift. But following Jesus costs everything. This is one of the great paradoxes of the Christian life. Salvation, being born again, relationship with God, eternal life, it is an utterly free gift. You can only receive it by faith. But to follow Jesus, to live for him, to walk with him will cost you everything. Jesus could not be more explicit about this. In Mark chapter 8, verse 34, Jesus says to the crowds, if anyone wants to follow me, any of you guys, if anyone wants to follow me, he must take up his cross, lay down his life, and then follow me. He says, first you give up everything. That this is entry level. This is the prerequisite. This is not next level, varsity level Christianity. He says, entry level, you want to be on the team, you want to follow me, you give up everything. He says, for the one who tries to save his life will lose it. But the one who loses his life for my sake in the gospel will save it. Now what that means is that to follow Jesus, there's a cost. There's a cost. There is a reordering of your loves that must happen where you say, my supreme devotion is to him. My supreme allegiance is to him. He is the greatest authority in my life. I'm not the greatest authority in my life. He is. That will cost you something. There's a reorientation of your values. Think about what you value. What you value is typically most clearly seen by how you spend your time, how you spend your money, how you form your relationships, how you set your priorities. That's what you value. And Jesus says, that's totally altered if you want to follow me. And what that will result in is pain. It's difficult to reorder your life and to continue to recalibrate along the way. 
There's a redefinition of your purpose. God's mission becomes your mission. Everybody in life, everyone is looking for purpose. And most people, they find their purpose in all kinds of different places. Their family, their career, their aspirations, their hobbies, their adventures. And Jesus says, all of that, it needs to be set aside. My mission becomes your mission. That's what it means if you want to follow Jesus. Now, we could get into all the different permutations in terms of what that will cost you, but it will cost you a lot. It's going to cost you something, and the cost will be high for every person. Now, it looks different based on your situation, your context, when you come to Christ, where you come to Christ, how you're situated in your community, but the cost will be high, and it will cost you something. So there's a, a measure of suffering associated with that. Now, there's also great joy with that because Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that a man found in a field, and in great joy, he goes and sells everything he has so he can have the field. So there's joy also, but there's pain with the cost. There's also suffering in the fact that the world will resist the person that genuinely worships God. So there's going to be suffering as you give up your life, and there's going to be suffering as the world opposes you in trying to worship and follow Jesus. That's thlepsis. And one of the results of justification is that when that pain comes in all of its various forms, Christians rejoice. We're excited. (laughs) We're happy. Why? Is it because Christians are inherently masochists? We just love pain and difficulty? No. Why do Christians rejoice in suffering? This is what Paul goes out of his way to explain. There's a reasoning behind it. He says, because we know that affliction or suffering produces endurance. We know that these tribulations, these sufferings, these afflictions produce endurance. Endurance. One of my good friends who's a pastor at our Southside location, he says that Christian faith is not perfect faith, but it is persevering faith. I think that's really helpful. Christian faith is not perfect faith, but it is persevering faith. So in Christ, you have the freedom to mess up. You're going to have bad days. You're going to have bad months sometimes. You're not going to make every decision perfectly in faith all the time. Of course you're not. But a real Christian keeps going until the end. So when you fail, you say, man, that's not what I want to do. You repent, you turn, you walk in the freedom of the grace of God, and you apply faith to his promises, and you do that over and over and over until the moment you meet him face to face. You endure to the end. And because of your desire to endure, if you're a Christian, your life will change over time. It's going to happen. This is Paul's next point. He says, endurance produces proven character. So why do Christians rejoice in suffering? Because we know that affliction produces endurance, and endurance produces proven character. Hebrews 12.1 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. So if you know, as a Christian, I want to go to the end. 
I want to walk in faith every moment of my life, not perfectly, but that is what I'm committed to. That's what I want more than anything because I love Him. I want Him. Then what you know you need is to change. (laughs) That's what I need. I'm like, man, I'm 40 years old. I've been following Christ for 20 years, and I I know more clearly today than I did 20 years ago. If I'm going to make it to the end, I need God to continue to change me. I need strength when I'm 60 that I don't have today. I I need character. I need to become like Jesus in ways that I'm not like Him today if I'm going to finish the race. And Paul says endurance produces proven character. It's a symbiotic relationship. So let me illustrate this to you. If you made it your goal today that you were going to run a marathon six months from now, would anything need to change in your life? If you were serious about that, I'm going to run a marathon. I want to finish a marathon in six months from now. Would anything need to change in your life? I'm looking around the room, and I think the answer is yes for just about everyone. Now, some of you guys are pretty fit, but I think the answer is yes for just about everyone to varying degrees. But if you were serious about that goal, you would know, okay, I need to make some changes. My sleep is going to probably have to change. My nutrition is going to have to change. I'm going to probably have to drink more water, get some electrolytes in that water, need to do some stretching, some mobilization. At some point, when you're ready, you would need to start actually running. (laughs) You need to start training, working to build up your endurance, because you know that if you don't do those things, you have no chance of finishing the race. And so it is the pursuit of endurance that produces proven character. That's what Paul is saying. Now let's go back to our illustration from earlier. Similar illustration. We bring 10 guys up here on stage. 10 guys, and let's assume they're all physically very similar. Same height, same weight, same BMI, same physical proportions, same relative age. And our goal now, we're not trying to determine if they're Christians or not, but let's say we wanted to determine which one of them has the greatest cardiovascular endurance. How would we go about doing that? Let's say we want to rank them one to 10. 10 guys, almost identical physically, and we're trying to figure out who has the greatest cardiovascular endurance. We don't know anything about them, nothing. Can't have a conversation, can't talk to them just based on physical appearance. How would we go about ranking them? You just have to guess. I mean, you just have to eyeball it. That guy looks like he can breathe well. I don't know. It would be impossible because cardiovascular endurance is invisible. It's invisible. It is based on the strength and capacity of your heart and lungs, which you can't see. And it's even crazier than that. When you start to get into metabolic rate, lactic threshold, we're talking about things that are at a cellular level. You can't observe them. Even mental toughness is an aspect of cardiovascular endurance. How do you observe that just by looking at somebody? These are all character traits that are invisible to the naked eye. But what all of you guys understand inherently and intuitively is that even though they are invisible, you can see them. You can see somebody's mental toughness. You can see the strength and capacity of their heart and lungs. You can see their lactic threshold. How? By introducing suffering. That's how. 
So we took those 10 guys, and we lined them up, and we said, race a 5K. Race a half marathon. We're going to find out real quick who's who. We will see their cardiovascular endurance. And this is exactly what Paul is talking about. The stimulus of pain reveals who you are. That's the idea. The same is true spiritually. The same is true with your character. Now, proven character in this context means deep, genuine, internal heart transformation. Proven character is those things about you that make you more and more like your Savior, that make you like Jesus. That's proven character. And so what Paul is saying is that suffering in the life of a Christian is an opportunity to walk in faith in God's promises. It is an opportunity to trust God through difficulty. And when you trust God in faith through suffering over and over, what happens over time is your character is more and more refined and changed. You become more and more like your Savior. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7 that a tree will be recognized by its fruit. Apple trees produce what? Apples. Yep. A corn plant produces what? Ears of corn. Christians produce the fruit of the Spirit, and it's in suffering that that fruit will be most clearly seen. Then Paul says this, and proven character produces hope. Proven character produces hope. When you walk into difficulty for the sake of following Christ and endure through it without quitting, when you're able to rejoice in the opportunity to trust your Heavenly Father without becoming bitter or angry or disillusioned, what you end up with in the end is great confidence in your justification. That's the result. The certainty of your hope grows. That's the idea. Now, just to be clear, nothing has changed. So from the moment you're born again, you have peace with God. You can stand in His presence. You can hope in His eternal glory. None of that has changed. Positionally before God, all of those things are the same. But what proven character does is it shows you those invisible realities about yourself. And it gives you greater hope, greater confidence in what God has done in you. Then Paul says this, verse 5, this hope will not disappoint us. This hope will not disappoint us. Now, why won't it disappoint us? What you expect him to say, okay, based on the logical flow of the first four verses, what you expect him to say is this hope will not disappoint us because we know heaven's going to be way better than this life, which is true. And Paul says things like that in other places, but that's not what he says here. He says, this hope will not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. That's right now. That's not, man, heaven's going to be so much better, so it's worth it. He says, no, no, that hope will not disappoint us because it's hope for today. That's now. Proven character built through Christian suffering gives you confidence of the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit in your life right now. It is proof that God's love is changing you from the inside out. Just like when a runner gets faster in the mile, they know the training's working. 
My heart, my lungs, my metabolic rate, lactic threshold, everything's getting better. It's improving, even though I can't see any of that stuff. I have evidence of it. In the same way, when a Christian genuinely rejoices in their suffering, they know that love for God and love for people is growing in them. It's changing their thinking. It's changing their values. It's changing their priorities. Now, just quickly to close, I have two questions and one application. Question number one, how are you suffering for Christ? This is an important question. In what ways are you suffering for Christ? Because here's what many people who go to church regularly call themselves Christians. Here's how they think. Man, yeah, I can totally relate to this. Going to church every week, trying to read my Bible every day, trying to pray regularly. Man, that's hard. Christian life is full of suffering. (laughs) Do you think that's what Paul has in mind here? Of course not. That's the good stuff. That's the sweet part of the Christian life is that we get to commune with God, that we get to be a part of his mission. That's not what Paul's talking about. And if you think, man, the Christian life is so hard because you have to go to church. The Christian life is so hard because you have to read the Bible. The Christian life is so hard because you have to try to pray regularly. If that feels like suffering to you, then you have to ask yourself whether or not you really want him, whether or not you really want to know him. How are you suffering for Christ? We could talk for so long about this. (laughs) But think about what is it costing you to follow him? Real suffering involves doing something. It involves decisions that you would never make if the gospel wasn't true. And I would say in my experience, probably the greatest suffering has come in trying to love other people. There's all kinds of decisions that we have to make to reorder our lives, and those are difficult. Those will require some suffering. But Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. And man, that can be hard. Because loving God, (laughs) loving God, it can be hard because of my sin, but God never makes it hard. God makes it easy. But loving people, (laughs) that's different. God calls us to love people. God calls us to lay our lives down for our brother and sister. God calls us to lay our lives down for a lost world. And I think that is where much of the suffering is. It's risky to love people because oftentimes they do not reciprocate. (laughs) So you invest in people. You stick your neck out. You open your heart to them. You serve them. You You share your life with them. And sometimes it doesn't go well. Sometimes they turn around and hurt you or abandon you or slander you or ridicule you or take advantage of you. That's where much of the suffering comes in the Christian life, in my opinion. There's many other ways to suffer, but how are you suffering for Christ? That's an important question. And if you can't identify anything, then it probably means that you need to get going. That's your application, is get going. Figure out what God is calling you to and walk into it in faith. Second question, what is your attitude in your suffering? So let's just take one example. When you suffer because you're hurt by people, because you're trying to love them, there's one of two things that can happen typically, is that you will either become cynical, you become a quote-unquote realist. (laughs) You know, everybody's a jerk. Nobody really loves Jesus. 
And, and, and you'll, because you're a Christian and you have Christian convictions, you may continue to try to make disciples and love people, but your wall will go way up. You become cynical. Your expectations for people will become so high that before you will be their friend, before you will love them or try to disciple them, they could never meet those expectations. You just give up on people really quickly. Because you say, I've seen this movie play out before. I'm not signing up for it again. And you end up living your life on an island if you're overly cynical. The other ditch that you can fall into when you're hurt by people, when you try to love them, is indifference. And you just say, man, it's not worth it. You just stop trying. You don't try to invest in relationships in any depth or with any type of purpose with anyone. And if you don't do that, then you never get hurt. You just keep it shallow. You keep it nice and fluffy and light. (laughs) You know, we'll hang out. We'll talk once a year. Something like that. And the result is the same in both cases. You can't love anyone. You can't be fruitful. Now, there's all kinds of other ways. Suffering, it tempts you to bitterness. It tempts you to anger. It tempts you to disengage with God's mission. But what is the cure for that? What is your attitude in suffering? And if you're struggling, which I know some of you are, I know you are, what is the cure? This is the application. Rejoice in your suffering. Choose joy in suffering. Choose to celebrate it. Choose to thank God for it. James chapter 1, verse 2 says this, Consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its full effect, so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. James is saying the same thing Paul is. God wants to bless you in suffering. God wants to show you his love and the power of his spirit working in you through suffering. But what James says that Paul doesn't say is you have to cooperate. (laughs) You have to let endurance have its full effect, which means you need to choose joy. Let's pray. Father, thanks for for the gift of suffering. (laughs) Thank you, God, that you have allowed us to go through difficulty for your sake. Thank you, God, because that means that we get to know something more about Jesus. Jesus, you suffered more than any person who's ever lived. And yet you had greater joy. You had a more full experience of the glory of the Father than anyone who's ever lived. That's the path. God, help us to trust you on it. Help us to rejoice. God, help us, Lord. I pray that in our church, we would see the fruit of the Spirit manifest in ourselves and in one another. That we would have incredible joy when you ask us to do hard things or when we discover hard things because we're walking in obedience, that we would actually smile. We would say, here we go. Now I'm about to get to the good stuff. Now I'm about to see the work of the Holy Spirit, the love of God come through me in ways I never could without this pain. Give us that perspective, God. Thank you that it's possible because of your love. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.